Why are Christians such hypocrites? Man, Christians, they say one thing and they, they live another way. They say they believe this, but they don't live like they believe it. Why, why are Christians such hypocrites? And I want to just stop you for a second. And before you discount this question that I'm asking this morning, I want to kind of give it some validation. Because I personally know, and I'm sure you personally know, people who, who really the, the reason that they don't believe is because they look at Christians and they say, if that's what being a Christian is, then I don't want that. Why are Christians such hypocrites? I have two stories to tell you this morning. This is very personal for me. Right, there was a kid in, in, in Lompoc, when I was a youth pastor there, I discipled three boys, four boys. Every week we'd go to breakfast and I'd take them to school on Tuesdays. And one of these boys recently has, has confided in me that he's no longer a believer. And one of the reasons that he is no longer a believer is because he sees Christians in the world not living what they say they believe. And if they don't do it, why should I do it? Pastor Chris, I want to believe. I want to believe. I know, that, I know you have a passion for this. I know that you believe it. And so I, I know that what you taught me was true, but I just can't. And even in my ordination interview, this was, I don't even know how many years ago now. Four, five years ago? Four? How old is Hayden? Four? Yeah. Five? I don't know. <laughs> He's getting older. <laughs> uh, in my ordination interview, uh, you know, you sit in this room with, with like 15 other pastors and they just ask you questions. And so they're asking me theological questions and then I'm answering all these theological questions. And I remember this one pastor, he said, Chris, I have a, a personal question to ask you. And I said, okay. I was thinking he was going to ask me a personal question, but he began telling me the story about his cousin. And his cousin was, was much younger than he was and had just attended uh, Nazarene Youth Conference in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And Nazarene Youth Conferences are, uh, every four years we have this youth conference for our teenagers, and usually we're between six and 10,000 teenagers at these things. And so he said, my, my cousin went to this, and he experienced Jesus. He had a profound experience with Jesus. But when he was talking to his friends, and looking around the event, he saw all of these other teenagers who had professed to this experience of Jesus Christ, but their lives looked no different. And he said, my cousin told me the other day that, that he has kind of chalked that up to just an emotional, kind of manufactured experience. He doesn't believe that Jesus is real because he looks at all the people who claim that Jesus is real and sees no difference in their lives. What do I tell that person? What do I tell my cousin? That was his question in my ordination interview. What do I tell my cousin? I'll tell you my answer in a little bit. But this question, why are Christians such hypocrites, is not a question that we should just easily discount. To say, oh, that's just those non-believers looking for reasons not to believe. That's, that's not it. This is a very real thing. There is a, I, I would even say that it's, it's kind of an epidemic in our, in our Christian society that people claim to believe the right things. 
but their lives don't show any difference. In fact, there was a study done about 15 years ago. This is an old study, but this just goes to tell you how, how long. This is not just a new issue. This is kind of a longer issue here. Right? Study done, and they asked, they asked these people, what is the difference between your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends? And the number one answer, the number one difference between the non-Christian friends and the Christian friends was this. My Christian friends go to church sometimes. That was the number one answer. My Christian friends, they go to church sometimes. Man, if that is the only difference between Christian people and non-Christian people, then we have got an issue. There's a, there's a big reason that young people all around the nation, all around the world, are leaving the church. And it's because they don't see people who live what they claim to believe. We don't practice what we preach. This is a major deal. Why are Christians such hypocrites? Here's the, the objection that's from the, from the small group. The small group is going to talk about this this week, and this is kind of what we've based off of our series here. The objection is this. People feel that they cannot identify with an institution such as the church or with Christian individuals when they see such an appalling record of injustice and hypocrisy. This question is a dangerous question for the church because it can easily be discounted by people who believe to say, this isn't a real question, they're just looking for a way to not believe. But if we do not take this question seriously, I think we're in danger of becoming like two of the churches in Revelation. If you turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, there's two churches, one in Sardis and one in Laodicea. And here's, here's the warnings from Jesus to these churches. Right, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. This is to the church in Sardis. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says this to this church. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains as is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I come for you. Here's another warning to the church of Laodicea in, in, in the same chapter, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish you were either one of the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Literally, the language here is, I'm going I'm to vomit you out of my mouth, Jesus says to this church. Look, I know you, that Jesus is saying. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive. You, you have a reputation for, for being true, for being authentic, for being real. For, this, is your, this is your reputation. You have lived what you say you believe, but you, you are dead. You have a reputation for that, but in reality, you are dead. He says to this other church in Laodicea, look, I, I wish that you were hot or cold. I wish that you would just make a decision. Either be for me or be against me, but don't, don't ride the middle. I think this morning, I think we're not far off from these two things. A couple months ago, I talked through the book of James. And in James chapter 2, there's a passage, and I want to just revisit it real quick. I won't spend too much time here. James chapter 2, which isn't far back from, from Revelation. If you turn a few pages back. <clears throat> Actually, I lied. It's kind of far back. James chapter 2. 
Starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? When she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. See, I, t- I talked that week that it's not enough just to believe certain things. There has to be action there has to, that, that has to be reflected in our lives. And I, I said it that week, and I just want to say it again this week. There are a lot of Christians who have some really profound demon-like faith. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. I think there are a lot of people sitting in pews all around our country, all around the world today, who have, who have great demon-like faith. But I think, I think in that instance, not only is your faith lacking, if you're not able to, to put it into action and apply it to you, but chances are that those looking at your life, from the outside looking in, see that you only say what you believe, and you only believe the things that you believe, but your life looks no differently. Chances are... Those with demon-like faith are the kinds of people that are, that are asking this question, right? That are, are being asked of this question. Why are Christians such hypocrites? I'll say it again in this way. Why do so many Christians have demon-like faith? Now, what am I, what am I advocating for this morning? What's the, what's the answer? What's the solution to this? I'll put it this way. Have any of you rented anything? A car? A vacuum from the grocery store. No one? No one? Okay. Jeez. Yeah. All right. I have. I've rented quite a few things. And uh, one of those things that I rented was a car. And uh, I'll tell you a story about the time I rented a car. And, uh, me, and me and my friend Keegan, uh, we went up to Canada uh, one time for some meetings. Uh, and uh, in Canada, we rented this car, or they gave us a, a Ford Fusion, and uh, it was in winter in Canada, it was, I think, March, and it was about this time of year, actually, in Canada, and so it was cold, and uh, there was a good chance of snow. So we get to the airport in Canada, we rent our car, we get to our hotel, hanging out that night in our hotel, it's been a good night, we're just kind of hanging out and looking out our window, there's no snow, okay, no, it's not going to snow. We wake up, my buddy's alarm goes off at 6 o'clock because he forgot to turn it off even though there's no reason to be up at 6 o'clock in Canada. <clears throat> so, but he wakes up and he looks out the window, and there's no snow. So we go back to bed. About 8.30 in the morning, I get this kind of like, bro, you got to wake up. You need to see this. <laughs> and I got up and I looked out the window, <clears throat> and I'm not exaggerating, there was about 8 inches of snow on the ground between 6 o'clock and 8.30. So, 
My California, Arizona mind is thinking, I guess we're snowed in, <laughs> right? Like, I guess this is it. <laughs> I mean, what are we going to do today? I, we can't go anywhere. I don't know what's going on. And, uh, you know, he's from, he's from uh, he grew up in Idaho, so he kind of knows what he's doing in the snow. But I begin to, like, and run down the check line in my brain. I, we don't have chains. We don't have anything. How are we going to get around? And then I continue to watch outside, and, and as the day keeps going, the, People are just driving. Like, there's no chains, there's no anything. The road is still just snow. Like, there's no snow plows coming to clear the roads. It's just people going along their daily business in the snow. And at lunchtime rolls around, and, and the realization comes to me and Keegan, we got to go eat. We have to go out in this. We have to go out in the snow. Like, okay, it's been a while for him, so I give him the keys. I've, I've never really driven in snow. I, I've been in snow for a little bit of my life, but like, I'd never really driven in it. So I give him the keys. He at least knows what he's doing. And, and so we begin to, to drive to lunch. And, uh, you know, it, we can't see the road. We're in a rental car. And so all of a sudden you hear this, and that might have been a curb. You know, keep driving and hit, a, hit something. And I, I have no clue what that was. It was uh, looking behind us, I still have no clue what that was, right? And so we're driving, hitting all kinds of stuff, hitting the curb. And we pull into this, pull into this restaurant. And I'm pretty sure neither of us even looked at the car to see the damage. It was a rental car. We didn't need to, right? We go in, we eat lunch, we come back. And, but here's the thing. If that was either of our cars, if that was my car, maybe not my truck, but my other car, if that was, my, if that was our Civic, I wouldn't have gone out. Right? I would have probably ordered pizza, which thinking back we should have done, right? But I probably would have just ordered pizza and not gone out and not tried to drive my Civic in the snow, not try to do any of it. Why? Because it's mine. I'm not going to do any damage to that thing on purpose. I know that I don't know how to drive in the snow, so why would I go drive in the snow with my own car? Things are different when we own them. Right? If you, have you ever tried to rent one of the floor cleaners from the grocery store? How gross and disgusting are those things, even when you get them? They're supposed to be cleaned when you get them? No. Why? They're rentals. You treat things differently when you own them. And I think the same thing can be true for our faith. I think there's a lot of us who are still just kind of renting our faith. It hasn't truly become ours yet. We don't own it. Right? We believe certain things. And why do we believe certain things? Because we learned them from our parents. Our pastors taught us these things. And so, so yeah, I believe those things. But we haven't quite let it soak into the point where it's ours. We don't really own our faith. We believe what we believe, but do we live like we believe it? That's the question this morning. How do, how do we begin to, to own our faith? And I think what we, what we have this week is we, as we hear this question, why does the church have so many, why are, why are Christians such hypocrites? I think what we have is a group of people looking in on the church and seeing a bunch of renters. Not seeing a lot of people who own their faith, but seeing a lot of people who, who rent. I've been talking a lot about studies and different surveys and polls and all this kind of stuff the last few weeks. I want to revisit one that we talked about two weeks ago when we were talking about all the rules. The one that said about 85% of people believe that Christians are judgmental. Right? Here's the rest of that survey. This survey was done by the Barna Group, and 
And uh, they, they took this survey and came up with the top 10 unfavorable things about Christians and the top 10 favorable things about Christians. And I, I want to read you just some of them. I'll, I'll read you the top eight for each one. Number one thing, unfavorable. These are unfavorable things that people believe about us. Number one, that we are anti-homosexual. And by that, the, the people, not just the act. 91%. Judgmental, 87%. Hypocritical, 85%. 85% are believing what we were talking about this morning, that Christians are hypocritical. 85%. 75% think we're too involved in politics. 72% say we're out of touch with reality. 78% say we're old-fashioned. I don't know why those are switched. I apologize. 70% say that we're insensitive. 68% say that we're boring. All right. Favorable. Here's the favorable things that people say about us. And I just want you to... Just pretend that these are favorable with me. Here's the, here's the most favorable thing that people said. 82% of people said that the most favorable thing about us is that we, that we teach the same basic ideas as other religions. 82%. 76% of people said we have good values. 71% said that we were friendly. 55% of people said we have a faith that they can respect. 54% said that we have a hope for the future. 55% that we show love. 52% say that we're trustworthy. 41% say that we're genuine and real. These are, the, these are the positive things. Now, I just want you to notice here that if we were just doing a top eight, only two favorable things would be in that top eight. And one of those is that we teach the same basic thing as other religions. Now, this can tell you two things. First of all, there, there's a profound misunderstanding of, of Christianity. But second of all is this. If this is what people believe, then man, there, there has got to be a reason. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be a reason that all these things are, are the case. I think the larger question here is, is this, though. Why do people not know us for our faith in Jesus? Why are we known more for the things that we're against than the things and people we're for? And I think here's the answer. is because sometimes we're a little hypocritical. And we say we believe certain things, but we don't actually live it out. We say that we believe that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, but, but it doesn't always get acted out that way. We say that we should forgive others as we've been forgiven, but man, do we like holding grudges. We say all of these different things that we believe, but in, in actuality, the reality is quite different for us as believers sometimes. And there's a reason that some of these are, are true. That I mean, good values and the same basic ideas of the religion is the top two positive things. about our, they, they would be the only things that made the top list of that if we were to combine them. I think the larger question is this. Why do people not know us for our faith in Jesus? We've become known more for what we're against than who we're for. There's a book on my shelf right now, and the title just tells you all you need to know. It says, they like Jesus, but they don't like the church. It tells you all you need to know about the, 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 the perception of Christianity. Why are Christians such hypocrites? There's three stats in that whole thing, though, that just get, they get to me, bother me, like, really bad. 55% say that we have a faith. 54% say that we love well. 
55% say that we have hope. Faith, hope, and love. Now, if there is anything that we should be known for, it's faith and hope and love. Faith, hope, and love. Now, I could give you all kinds of scripture this morning and tell you where it says, I'll just read a few scriptures, because scripture is crawling with descriptions of the early Christians as these three things. Right? First, and we'll first go to Colossians chapter 1. It's on page 833 if you're in a pew Bible. Colossians chapter 1 says this. Verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored, for, stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Faith, hope, and love. You turn the page a couple pages, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 3. All right, we can start. We always, verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a couple pages over, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Faith, hope, and love. I could, I could go on for a while of all the scripture that talks about the faith and the hope and the love that we are to have as Christ followers. But, but here's the thing. What, is it, what does it look like to have faith? I mean, you look at the at faith is, should be so central to who we are. We should be known for our faith. Right, but I kind of understand why people question it. Right, you look at the faith that we read about and we tell stories about in Scripture, and you look at the faith of believers today, and then there's there's reason to question. Right, you look in stories, and you, my, one of my favorite characters in Scripture is Joshua. Right, Joshua was a man of of faith. Right, you go back to Joshua chapter ten, and we'll go there. It's on page one thirty eight, I believe, or one fifty eight. I can't read that number in the middle. Sorry, Joshua chapter ten. And uh, there's, a, there's just a, such a great story of faith, of Joshua's faith. But, but we first hear about Joshua. Joshua is not just a man of faith in this one story. We first hear of Joshua in the book of Numbers as him and Caleb are two of the ten spies sent out to go into the promised land to, say, to, to kind of scope it out and say whether they should go in. Joshua and Caleb, they come back and they're like, yeah, we should do this. God, God gave this to us. God is telling us to go, so we should go. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter that they're bigger than us. It doesn't matter that, that we have no chance. It doesn't matter because God has given this to us, so let's go. Right? The other eight guys come back and they say, man, these guys are giants. There is no way that we're going to go in there with our puny little army and take over these people. Right? Joshua is one of those people who says, let's go. And because of that, Joshua begins to lead the people of Israel after Moses dies. And, and in his leading, you know, we, we know of Joshua, probably the most famous story of Joshua is in the, the wall of Jericho, right? Joshua and the, and the wall of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down, right? The old Sunday school song. Otherwise known as like the worst battle plan ever created, right? Here's how you win. You walk around the city six times. And on the seventh time, 
You yell real loud and the wall will come down and you win. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. That's a good battle plan, right? Yeah. But he does it. Why? Because he has faith. But in Joshua chapter 10, I, I love this story. This is one of those stories where, you know, when I get to heaven, I, 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 there's got to be like a replay room, you know? Like I just... I want to just go sit in the replay room and just watch all of these things from Scripture come into place. And this is one that I want to see in Joshua chapter 10. <clears throat> we'll start at verse 1. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because of the because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Purim, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all the troops and moved up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all of the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, <clears throat> Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled down large hailstones on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Right? That's just part one of the, of the replay that I want to see, like God literally fighting for, for Israel, right? <clears throat> on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, think about the faith that needs to happen in, in yourself to be able to pray this prayer and believe that it will happen. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. As is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all of Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Think about the faith that has to happen here. Gonna go get these guys. God says, don't fear. I've given them to you. Joshua just can't even wait. Sun, stand still. And the sun stood still. Man. I mean, this is just, this is just a, a powerful story of faith. And I could go on talking about the people with faith. You talk about Abraham going up to sacrifice his son, right? And, and not taking an offering because God told him not to take an offering. And when, when Isaac, his son, is going up the mountain, hey, dad, where's the sacrifice? What does he say? He doesn't say, you're the sacrifice. He says, God will provide the sacrifice. Right? There's, there's so many different examples of faith in scripture that I could see. And, and it's not just a biblical thing, though. <clears throat> there are plenty of people in a real life today who have faith like this, 
who have faith and can pray some, some crazy things and see them happen. I've told the story before about my, one of my first summers in, in summer camp as a, as a youth pastor and a kid hurting his knee really bad in a game and, and his knee was dislocated and his kneecap was down by his ankle and all kinds of stuff and, and he just tore up everything in his knee. Right? He goes, goes to the hospital, comes back and, and he's sitting in the back right at the beginning of one of our chapel services and his friends go back and they lay their hands on his knee and they pray for his knee. And the next thing you know, this kid, who the last time I'd seen him was screaming on, a, on, a, on the grass, up on the platform, dancing in worship, goes home and there's nothing wrong with his knee. How does this happen? Uh, this isn't just a biblical thing. Stuff like this doesn't just happen in Scripture. It happens in real life. Why? Because people have faith. We should be known for our faith. We should be known for the kind of faith that we're, that we're called to have. <clears throat> Here's the second thing, hope. Why aren't we known for our hope? And people, people ask, why do you have so much hope? <clears throat> Let me tell you about the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. I was once a sinner. I was once caught in some things that I shouldn't have been in. I was once in a place in my life that I shouldn't have been. But God, in his great mercy and in his great love, picked me. And he called me. Not only back into a relationship with him, but to to be honored with with preaching the word. I mean, I, I have so much hope in God because of all the things that he has brought me out of. And, and in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Uh, we, should, we should be people of hope. We talked a little bit, we talked a lot about hope last week and, and the hope that we have in Revelation 22, that at the end of everything, we will see the face of God. We should be a people of just of a profound hope. In the New Testament, hope, the word hope is used 52 times. And, and every single time that it is used, it's used in relation with God. He's the God of hope. We have hope because of God. It's always connected in some way to God. Right, we have hope in, in, a, in, a, in our God of hope. We have hope. So what is hope? Hope is kind of like the opposite of memories. All right, how do we know what happened in the past? We remember. We have memories. How do we know what will happen in the future? We have hope. How do I know that, that what God says is, is true? How do I know that, that Revelation 22 is correct and that, that at one point every knee would bow and that every tongue would confess and that we will see Jesus face to face with our own eyes? How do I know? I have hope. I have hope. Yeah, there should be way more than just 50% of people to say we have hope. We should have such a, such a profound hope in our lives that changes the way that we live and love is probably the one that bothers me the most. 55% of people say that we, that we love well, that we love others. 55%. This is, this is central to the gospel. This is the gospel. That God so loved the world that he sent his son. And God, Jesus tells us in John chapter 13. If you turn to John chapter 13, page 763, if you're in a pew Bible. John... <clears throat> Chapter 13 says this, A new command I give you. This is Jesus speaking in John 13, 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
Now, I, I just wanted to read that again. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How has God loved you? He sent his son to die for you. This is how much God loves you. Jesus says, as I've loved you, you must love one another. And not only should you do it, this is the, this is the way. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Man, this is, this is the gospel. This is, this is who we're called to be. We're called to be people of love. And yet, just over half of people think we're, we're people of love. Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> if you go back to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law on the prophets hang on these two things. Love. Love is so central to who we are. We should be known for our love. There should be no question. People should look at the church and one of their first instincts and their first reaction should be, man, those people love each other. Those people love well. Not only do they love each other, they love everyone. Equally. Yeah, even those people, they love them. This should, this should be our identity. And if it bothers you a little bit that our identity is being questioned here, that's good. If it bothers you a little bit that, that our hypocrisy is being called out, that's good. It should bother you a little bit. It should really bother you that there are people who claim to be Christians who are not living it out. It should, should bother you deeply. Jesus in Scripture had his identity questioned at one point. And I, and I love this passage, one of my favorite passages. I talked to just a little bit about it last week from the, from the angle of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is the one who's asking this question. I talked about it from that angle, but I want to think about it this, this week from Jesus' angle. Right? Jesus, in, in the book of Luke, chapter 7, <clears throat> is, is doing his thing. He's going around, he's healing people. He's going around and, and preaching. He's preaching the gospel. He's telling people to, to repent. The kingdom is here. Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things, all these things that Jesus was doing. John's disciples told him about it. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Remember last week we looked at John the Baptist's situation here and why he's asking that question. He's, he's stuck in prison after spending his entire life just lifting up Jesus. Jesus is in the same town. He's, he's right there. Why can't Jesus come and get me out of prison? I know he's able. Why is he not doing this? Right? Are you actually for real, Jesus? Are you the one who was to come or should I be expecting someone else? I want to just read Jesus' response to this. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back, report to John what you have seen and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, Jesus answers this question. And Jesus' answer, I want you to hear this. Jesus didn't say yes. 
I am the one who was to come. He didn't say, no, I'm not the one who was to come. You can expect someone else. He didn't give him a straight answer. What did, what did Jesus say to John, who was asking if he was for real or not? Jesus tells John's disciples, go back, and you tell John what you see. You tell John what you hear. The blind are receiving sight. The dead are raised. These lepers are being healed. What do you think? The question this week is, why are Christians such hypocrites? And maybe you're thinking, ah, I'm not one of those. Thank God I'm not one of those. But I want to ask you this question. Here's a good test for you. If someone asked you, are you a Christian? Could you say back, what do you see? What do you hear? That's a little harder. That's actually really hard, right? That's hard to think about. What do you see and what do you hear? I look at my life and I think, man, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I'm living up to it here. Maybe I fit in that hypocrite situation here. I got some work to do. Right, and that's been a challenge for me ever since I read this story, and, and I've, I think I've probably preached about it a few times, and I apologize for preaching about it again this morning, but this story from John, what do you see and what do you hear? I, can I say that? Can you say that? Why are Christians such hypocrites? Why can't more Christians say that? Why can't more Christians say, what do you say? What do you see? What do you hear? My prayer for you this week is that you're able to say that. Someone asks you about your faith in Christ. You can say, what do you see? What do you think? Am I doing it? Am I living it? Or is it just words? Is it just beliefs? Is there no action? Is it like James? Am I like a a man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like? What do you see? What do you hear? Let's pray. God, we love you. And we give you praise. We give you thanks this morning, God. And we, God, this is, this is not an easy subject to talk about. Why are, why are Christians such hypocrites? Because it, it, this question forces us to look within ourselves and to say, hey, am I living this out? God, my prayer this morning is that all of us are living it out. My prayer this morning is that if we're not living it out, that we would be convicted and that we would be challenged this morning by you, that you would challenge us to live it out, that you would show us how we're not living it out, that we might more faithfully live for you today than we did yesterday because we've heard these words from you. What do you see and what do you hear? God, my prayer is that we're able to say that this morning in honesty. What do you see? What do you hear? This week, maybe we look inside ourselves and ask that question of ourselves. And what do I see in myself? What, what do I hear in myself? Am I truly living out what I, what I believe, what I say I believe? God, would we push back against the charge of hypocrisy in the church? Would we be an example at Fresno First Church of what it looks like to live out what we say we believe? God, we love you.
and we want to live for you. Would you help us and would you guide us this week? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? As we go, let me just pray this prayer of blessing for you. May our God of grace and love, may he challenge you this week and shape you this week. May he cause you to look deep within yourself and to see the places in which hypocrisy is present. And may you be humble enough to accept that and to work on it and to change. May this God of love and peace go with you this week and may you make a difference in your community wherever that may be. Go in peace and go in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.